Welcome to Church of the Red Door. If this is your first time to Church of the Red Door, uh, raise your hand. Look at all, we are so happy you're here. If this is the last time you're ever going to come to church, no, 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 no. So uh, what a privilege to have you here on this Christmas Eve. Uh, this is uh, for us as followers of Jesus. We're kind of unapologetic about that. This is a big deal for us. And sometimes it's super challenging to think about this because we've, it's become routinized. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, there are times when we just kind of come together and you expect, I'm going to open my Bible. We're either going to turn to the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke. We're going to read about the shepherds and the sheep and all that kind of thing. And, and, uh, and this baby was born and we're going to read the story. And we could do that and it would be appropriate to do that, but I'm not going to do that. We're going to do something so radical, so wild, so different that it may, I hope, take your breath away. So let's pray. We're going to need some help. Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, this, this idea, this concept of you being king. Lord, we know you existed. We know you were here on the earth. Other works of antiquity tell us that. So it's not just some fable or something that people made up after the fact. Lord, you are a, an historical figure. So we're asking you as resurrected Jesus to come through the Holy Spirit and be here with us. Lord, I know we have many people here that may be going, you know, I just don't, I can't buy this. It just seems like kind of a cultural fairy tale to me. And so I want to, I want you to speak to all of us. Uh, and if you are the sovereign God and have the ability to create out of nothing, then that's not hard for you. So we invite you into this place in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this has never happened in a Christmas Eve service ever. I am going to quote from a uh, fairly secular book here. Uh, it's called You Are Not So Smart, and it's by uh, Mr. McCraney here. And he talks about something called a learned helplessness, learned helplessness. So this is basically just some information that psychologists have put together, and they've done some experiments. And this is, I, will, I want to tell you straight up front, this couldn't be done today because it's animal cruelty, but bear with me. Like I said, you've never experienced this in a Christmas Eve service before. Uh, there is a misconception. First, he says, this is a misconception. If you're in a bad situation, you will do whatever you can do to escape it. That's what we all think. You know, if you're in a bad situation, you flee, you run, it's fight or flight. It's kind of that thing. You, you get out of there. He says, the reality is, this is truth. If you feel like you aren't in control of your destiny, you will give up and accept whatever situation you are in. Now, he says, in 1965, a psychologist named Martin Seligman started shocking dogs. I don't mean like, you know, doing something shocking. I mean, actually shocking them, kind of the Pavlovian thing. He was trying to expand on the research of Pavlov, the guy who could make dogs salivate when they heard a bell ring. Many of you will know that from school. It's kind of one of those landmark things. Seligman wanted to head in the other direction, and when he rang his bell, instead of providing food, he zapped the dogs with electricity. To keep them still, he restrained them in a harness during the experiment. Now, after they were conditioned, he put these dogs in a big box with a little fence, dividing it into two halves. He figured if he, if he rang the dog bell, it would hop over the fence to escape, but they didn't. It just sat there and braced itself, and they decided to try shocking the dog after the bell, and the dog just sat there, and he just took it. And when they put a dog in a box that he had never... Uh, excuse me, that had never been shocked before or had previously been allowed to escape and tried to zap it, it jumped the fence. You 
are just like these dogs. Now, this is not a, this is not a Christian author. This is just secular research. He goes on to say, if over the course of your life you've experienced crushing defeat or pummeling abuse or loss of control, you convince yourself over that time that there is, in fact, no escape, and if escape is offered, you will not act. You become a nihilist who trusts futility above optimism. In other words, you're a slave, you're captive, you're captive to your experiences, and unlike what you would think, many of you settle and you just live in that place of getting shocked over and over and over again. He said, what in the world, what possible connection can you make with a baby in a manger? That's the question I want to ask tonight. I'm not sure I can, but I'm going to do the best I can in an effort to give you an insight into Jesus' coming. Now, when we say Advent, this is called Advent season. Do you know what Advent actually means? It just means the coming. Okay, so there was, a, there was a coming that Christians believe into, believe that God took on human flesh some 2,000 years ago, and he came uh, in a number of ways. He came as the shepherd of the sheep, for instance. He came uh, to, in his own words, when he began his ministry, he said, I came to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners. He said, you're all enslaved. He would go on to say, in fact, if you sin, you're a slave to sin. That's what, those are Jesus' words. So he said, that's what I came to do. I came to provide liberty. I came to build a new kingdom. He started talking about a kingdom that he's going to inaugurate with all new kinds of people in it with new hearts and new spirits. Interesting. And ultimately, and this is the wild part, he was born, he said, to die. In fact, the Bible says that he actually came to die. Now, we get a picture in our mind when we come to Christmas, and we've got little baby Jesus in a manger, and we've got some kind of interesting things, and we've got wise men, you know, huddled around. And if you were here on Sunday, Pastor Paul said, well, that probably didn't happen for a couple of years. Jesus would have been maybe two years old by the time these uh, wise men from the east showed up probably two years old, not, not a baby in a manger. And we kind of get it all kind of discombobulated, but a lot of people don't think deeply about that because they still leave Jesus in a little manger. And that's something we simply cannot do. Now, what's interesting is that we're going to go back a thousand years, 1,000 years in advance of Jesus. There are two Psalms, specific Psalms, and there are many other Psalms that talk about Jesus. In fact, the entirety of the Old Testament, again, for you who hadn't been around your Bible very much, was codified. There's no, there's no debate about this. It was already in place, a Greek version called the Septuagint, some almost 200 years before the time of Jesus. So this was clearly, and again, there's no debate about this, a thousand years in advance. There were two particular Psalms, Psalm chapter 40, and then Psalm chapter 41, that were specifically looking at Jesus. Now, there were many others that were fulfilled. Uh, Isaiah, for instance, as a prophet, talked about there was going to be a young unmarried woman, clearly inferences for a virgin, and that's why it's translated virgin, uh, that there would come about. There would be a great light. There, we were going to call him Emmanuel, God with us. We were gonna, he was going to shine on us, all these different kinds of things. The prophets knew exactly, and yet they couldn't quite put it all together, but the Holy Spirit was speaking through them and saying, there is something coming, there is something coming, something very powerful, and yet very humble. Mounted on a donkey, he would be as he went to the cross. Now, a thousand years before, in Psalm chapter 40, I want you to listen to this language. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Now, this is David writing the psalm, but many of the psalms, we will understand, they couldn't possibly have pertained 
to specifically David and him alone. For instance, he said, and he didn't undergo decay. And we see that uh, again later in the Psalms. And yet, well, Jesus didn't undergo decay, but David did. So he wasn't talking about himself. These are what theologians call dual prophecy fulfillments. This is, again, a dual prophecy fulfillment. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Now, this gets interesting now. Catch this. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. Let me just tell you, this changed my life. I'm blessed because there was a day in my life some 25, 30 years ago that I said, I'm going to start trusting Jesus, not as a baby in a manger, but as an extraordinary messianic figure that came to release me from my slavery and all the pain that I was causing not only myself, but those that lived around me. And my mom watching maybe on live stream would say, amen. Okay, so she said, and how blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. NIV says, fall back on their foreign gods, their false gods. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts towards us. There's none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak them, they would be too numerous to count. Now he gets into something weird. He's going to say, you're not into all this animal blood and these sacrifices and these offerings. You're not into all the religious stuff. You're not interested in me just going to a service every once in a while or throwing a few bucks in the plate. You're not really interested in that. He says, sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. Even though you told us to do it, you haven't really wanted that. You're not into the religious thing. And then he says something very strange. My ears you have opened. My ears you have opened. Now, this is strange because... If you see that open, it's kara in the Hebrew, and it actually means to excavate, like to dig out something in the ear. It's like to dig it out, and that's just so strange. Uh, Why would he say that? My ears you have excavated. What a weird statement. And then it says something even stranger, burn offering and sin offering you've not required. And then I said, and this is clearly messianic, catch this, speaking of Jesus that would come a thousand years later, behold, I come. It's the, in, in an advent. There's, some, there's going to be a coming. I'm going to do some, and I catch this, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law, it's, it's already within my heart. Nobody else could say that. Everybody was a failure. The Bible's pretty clear. Everyone sins. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. No one makes it. No one. Now, what's fascinating about this is that if you go a 1,000 years forward into human history, 2,000 years now removed from us, there was a guy named Paul, and he wrote a letter to the Jews who were believing in Jesus as the Messiah. There were a lot of Jews who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, by the way. It wasn't just a few people who were Gentiles who came up with some strange religion three or 400 years after the fact. There were a lot of Jews that believed into Jesus, and he wrote them a letter, and he started back with this whole animal sacrifice thing again. God's not into that. He's not, he's not, he doesn't get pleasure out of the blood of bulls and goats, and that's where we pick it up in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. It says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, now catch this, 
when he comes into the world, when Jesus takes on, when, when he comes down and takes on human flesh and he enters the world, yeah, it'll be in a very remote, strange place that seem like, ah, who cares? Nobody really knows that much about Bethlehem. It's a small place. But when he comes, what's going to happen? He says, and now he quotes, are you ready for this? He quotes Psalm chapter 40. He said, sacrifice and offering, well, you haven't ever wanted that, but a body you've prepared for me. Now, what's interesting is that he doesn't use the same language. And talk about an ear being dug out or excavated, and what does that even mean anyway? He, he says, no, a body you have prepared for me. Did he take liberties with that? He says, in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you, you've taken no pleasure. And then he said, behold, I have come, the advent, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And, and he goes on. Now, what is he talking about? And why would he switch that language? Why would he transfer from digging out somebody's ear to a whole body you've prepared for me? And what does that mean anyway? And what does this have to do with Christmas Eve? Well, if we go back into Exodus, uh, many of you will know the story about Moses bringing the children of Israel out of, out of Egypt. Uh, Yul Brenner was not happy about it, but you, you know the story. In Exodus chapter 21, now catch this. Now, again, this is now being written almost 1,500 years in advance of Jesus because God was always talking about Jesus. You need to say, God the Father was always talking about Jesus. The entirety of the Old Testament is talking about Jesus in every chapter, in every place, sometimes nuanced, sometimes somewhat hidden, sometimes obvious and very clear. Like he's going to, from the tribe of Judah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And all, all, there's over 300 prophecies that talk specifically and directly about Jesus. But everything is speaking forward to a day when God is going to start all over again with a new kind of humanity. And he's going to see that it works out. Exodus 21, it's pretty fascinating it, it's talking about slavery and say wow he's really getting off track now because where's he how's he going to wind this thing up with christmas eve he's gone to slavery and excavating ears and this is really strange but exodus chapter 21 talks about a bond slave it talks about people in slavery now it's not the kind of chattel slavery that we have the horrible history that we have in the united states of america with our blight called slavery that Thank goodness for Lincoln and others and, and Wilberforce and some of these guys who came in and saw it abolished. And yet we still have all kinds of garbage because of that in our nation. We can see a lot of lines and rifts. This wasn't that kind of slavery. This was a kind of slavery that when somebody got deeply in debt, they could sell themselves in a way to somebody for a set period of time and they could work off their debt. They were called bond slaves. Exodus 21 prescribed for Israel exactly what that would look like. Pick it up in verse 5. At the end of their work, which was, could never be over seven years, at the end, he says this, if a slave plainly, now he's gotta, this has got to be an absolute plain statement, if a slave plainly says, well, you know what, I'd, I'd love to get free from this and I've worked off my debt, but there will be some slaves who will say, well, I love my master and my wife and my children and uh, I will not go out as a free man. I choose to be a bond slave. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. It sounds kind of 
horrific today, but that's exactly what would happen. Somebody, and they're completely under their own volition, go and say, you know, it's better. You can, if you put me back out there, I may fall right back into the same thing I used to struggle with. I, I don't want to get back in debt. I don't know. I don't have any prospects. And, you know, you have been so good to me and my family. We're thriving. Me, my wife, my kids, we're thriving with you as our master. Obviously, it's a, it was a great situation. I, I'm going to serve you permanently. And he would take him to the door post and this was part of the law this was part of the uh the law and he would take him and he would put his ear up and they would drive an awl right through it they would dig his ears out and then blood would start to flow down that doorpost people ask us all the time what is it about that well it was a picture again right there of bond slavery and also here the doorposts of your house and blood is running down just like would happen some 1500 years later when jesus would hang on the cross is that lamb blood would be running down running down the wood. It's a prefiguring of the cross. And somebody who committed themselves to serve this master forever under their own volition. Now, what does this amazing prophetic picture actually point to? Does it point to this messianic king? If we go forward into Philippians, Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi, and this is staggering. I want you to catch this. This is staggering. This should stagger you tonight. Again, this is written well in advance of Jesus, not Philippians, but much of this, and all this is pointing towards Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, listen to what he says. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, and Paul is saying, look, I'm asking you guys to make me, I want, make me joyful, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. And what is it? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Uh, don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. What kind of world would that look like? That'd be pretty cool. Nobody's worried about themselves. They're looking for the interests of others above their own. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? What kind, of, what, kind of people, what kind of environment would that look like? Well, then he says, why is that? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in the Messiah, Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond slave. I willingly, by my own volition, choose to serve my master, he submitted himself to the Father. Why? Because a thousand years before, the psalmist had said, because I delight to do your will. And in the scroll, everything's already been written down. Everything in this Bible, the first two-thirds of this Bible, before you get to the Gospel of Matthew, is all about Jesus too. And yet it was codified and written hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. Everything had already been written about Jesus Jesus came, and all he did was fulfill what had been written. In fact, he said, if, you, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, in other words, if I'm not doing this, then you shouldn't believe in me. So you said, well, you know, it's just faith. Is this this leap off into nothingness? No, not really. If you do some investigation, what's, what's really impactful, for 25 years, I've been going behind the walls of these country clubs all over this valley, 
and going in with men, mostly men, but also men and women that have kind of maybe come to church and done some religious things. And they wanted it to be true. They would like to think there might be eternal life out there somewhere. But they came in and somehow what they did is they just said, you know, well, you know, it's not, you know, I'd like to. I mean, tell me what to do and I'll do what I'm supposed to do. But then I'm going to go back to my life. This whole idea about really intellectually buying into this. And it's been my privilege to walk them through the scriptures and watch their faith just explode when they realize, wow, this is actually true. Shocking and amazing. I just thought, you know, it's kind of something for my little grandmother who used to go to church or something for people off in Africa who really don't know anything about science or anything else. You know, just kind of this grand leap of faith, you know. It's for dumb people, unintelligent people, people who don't have a skeptical mind or a, or a critical attitude. They don't critique anything. They just kind of buy in. They wouldn't say that. They might even go to church. And then they begin to believe. Now, obviously, this answers our question. And yet, Jesus didn't just have his ear pierced. He actually did prepare his whole body. Some 33 and a half years later, what happened? His whole body was prepared. Not just his ears were pierced through with an all. He was pierced in his side. He was pierced in his hands. He was pierced in his feet. He was pierced on his head. They, they took a crown of thorns. These thorns were about this long and shoved it so firmly down on his head that blood began to, well, began to work down into his eyes. He couldn't see. And they beat him across his face and they pulled his beard out. And it was a brutal sight. But he knew when he came to earth that that was always the plan. He came as a lamb. He came to be humbled. He came to be a bond slave himself, a servant of you and a servant of me. A servant, our own servant, our savior, but also to lay down his life, a ransom for all of us, a get-out-of-jail-free card for us. He would pay the price. He was just about to go to the cross, John chapter 14, verse 31, and he said, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me, exactly in complicity what the psalmist had said. I delight to do my Father's will. He knew he was going to lay down his life, and you know what he said? He says, all right, get up and let us go from here. He knew he was going to go to Golgotha, and he was going to lay down his life as a lamb. Revelation 13, 8 says that the lamb was slain from the foundations of the world. Jesus came knowing he was going to die. It was always the plan. Jesus didn't come down and then just try to figure out something and, and try to be a great teacher and spread some morality tales around uh, and then accidentally got killed in the process. No, he came so that he might lay down his life. Why? Because that's what was written down in the scroll. All the prophets had seen it. Isaiah and Isaiah 52 and 53 was very explicitly clear it's going to be like a lamb led to the slaughter. And all the sins of Israel were going to be placed upon him. And in fact, it would be the whole world. John 10, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. No one's taken it from me. Don't think Jesus came and got his life taken away. He says, But I lay it down on my own initiative. Uh, it was a volitional choice, like a bond slave. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Now, that, <laughs> that's pretty extraordinary. I have the authority to lay down my life, but I can tell you right now, I don't have the authority to take it back up again. I can go lay down my life. I can walk into a, 
you know, quickie mart and pull a fake gun or something and then police can come and I can lay down my life and I can ask like I'm going to shoot them and they can shoot me back. I can lay down my life, but me raising it back up on my own initiative, I don't know that I have that kind of authority. Jesus said he did have that kind of authority. And that's kind of crazy or it's true. There's only one reasonable response to this, really, for us if you actually believe this. 1 John 2, 6, the one who says... He abides in him, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. You believe this? Walk like he walked. Don't just come once a year. Don't just be a, you know, Christmas and Easter only person, CEO Christian. (laughs) At least do some due diligence. Think about this more deeply and think about it intellectually. Think about it long and hard and, and get the right information. 1 Peter 2.21, for you've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you in his example to follow in his own steps. Following Jesus is suffering, especially in our culture today. Now in the West, it's not anything like it is in the rest of the world. But you will be ostracized by some. You'll be called a fool. And well, but is there any other response to someone who actually laid down their life? I mean, can there be a real response and say, well, I know you came down. I know you're God. I know everything was created through you. I know you took on human flesh. I know you came. You died. You laid down your life for me, and you've given me free entrance, but I'm really not that interested in following you. Now, that is, now, if you don't follow him, you're just essentially saying, I don't know if I believe this stuff or not. Do your due diligence, would you? I ask you today, tonight, this Christmas Eve, can start your process today of starting actual due diligence, spiritual due diligence, in what you might think about Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And listen to the first two verses, and we're going to wind this thing down. Let you get back to your, to your festivities. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. See, we die. When he died for us, followers of Jesus, we lay down our own lives and we voluntarily say we now are bond slaves. We plainly say it's better off with our master than it was when I was out in the world. I can tell you right now, after 25 to 30 years of walking with Jesus, some walking closer than others, but progressively and more intimately walking with Jesus, it is much better off now with my master than the masters I had out in the world before that being drug around by every impulse that I might have, the desire for stuff and the desire for anything that would suit my fancy at that moment. And I can tell you, my life is better off with my new master than all the other masters that I used to serve. It's easy for me to be a bond slave. It's better off for me this way. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. Let me put it this way, might no longer have to live for themselves. Do you know how exhausting it is to live for yourself? I mean, it's amazing. I got to get up. I got to do my fingernails. I got to do this. I got to take like, a bath and this. And I got to make some money. And I got to get that new car. And I got to get this and that and this and that. And this. Look, it's exhausting to live for yourself after a while. You know how liberating it is not to have to live for yourselves? Jesus gave us a way. He gave us a pattern. It's powerful. Now, here's, here's the close. And I want this to grab you. This is what I meant. I want this... I want this to stagger you. Now, when Jesus came, a baby in a manger, a baby in a manger, do we have that? See, this right here, this actually has meaning to me. Now, it doesn't have, I didn't just find this. I called my dad this morning. I said, Dad, here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like you to go to the Christmas tree 
And I'd like you to take a picture of their Christmas tree back in Texas. I'd like you to take a picture of my baby. That's my plastic baby when I was like first grade. And I made this in a Sunday school class or something. I don't know where I made it. And I, and I actually paper clip, I, I staple those two things together and put that little thing and put that hay in there and put that little plastic baby in there. And for me, that was Jesus, man. That was Jesus. And we put him up on the tree and I put him, I said, can I put this in the tree? And then, and then it became kind of one of those things that it was the ceremonial top off every year. It just kind of evolved. I was the firstborn child. And every year we'd come in and I would take, where's my baby Jesus? Where's my plastic baby? And I'm like, shouldn't we put some swaddling clothes on him or something? I don't know what's going on. But anyway... <laughs> You know, and I brought my baby Jesus in, and that would be the culminating. Everything else would be decorated, everything there. But there's baby Jesus. I put him right on there. And sure enough, I said, Dad, can you take a picture? Because I'm sure he's on there, even though I'm not able to be with you this year. I'm sure he was the final, the final decoration of the Christmas tree. Is that how you see Jesus? I'm asking you the question. Do you see Jesus as that? Now, there's nothing wrong with that, because there is a staggering humility in him coming and being born in a manger. Might there have been other animals in there? We don't know exactly. There's a, at least a chance that there might have been others because uh, if you go back to some of the Talmudic writings, they had put a circumference around Jerusalem and some of these areas, they would, these shepherds specifically were raising little lambs, little sheep to be used to sacrifice because they were so near Jerusalem. So for Passover and things like that, they had to always constantly be raising these lambs that were unblemished and they would actually wrap some of these other lambs in swaddling clothes to keep them from falling on the rocks or getting hurt in any way, uh, eventually because their whole life was being born to be sacrificed. Uh, there's at least a chance, if you go back to Micah chapter 4, that Jesus would have been in the tower of the flock, might have been there in a manger, and there might have been other little lambs in swaddling clothes next to him. We don't know that for sure, but there's at least a chance. He was born to die. And he came humbly. He didn't come with the Ritz. Mm-mm. Came in an inconspicuous little place, a dusty place out in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. No iPhones, no nothing. Just, just the fulfillment of everything the prophets had seen. Powerful. Is that the way you see Jesus? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, listen to the next verse. It says simply this, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him this way no longer. Now, what you're seeing behind me is just a, like a little supernova, little supernova. That's the explosion of a star. It's just amazing, and it sets off enough power and force uh, of an entire galaxy when a super... And we can see it. The Hubble can see that thing happen from space. And it's extraordinary the amount of energy that's released in a supernova. What we're saying is this Christmas, there was Jesus in a manger. The plastic Jesus, right? My little Jesus. That's true. But the Bible also says, John, Colossians, Philippians... Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to this, but not to baby Jesus in a manger. It says right here, we don't, we don't recognize Jesus that way any longer. What do we do? We recognize him as the one who spoke into existence. Everything was created by him and for him, and nothing that was created was apart from Jesus. Nothing. That's what Paul says later. So Jesus didn't, it's not just baby in a manger. Jesus was the God, the Father, Use Jesus to create. By him, everything was created. 
And that's just one little tiny star exploding. Not to mention the billions of other galaxies that contain trillions and trillions of other stars, a force which we cannot be. We're staggered by that. You should be more staggered by the one that's spoken into existence out of nothing. You say, oh, no, I believe in science. Well, where did it start? Where did it come from? They say now it was a big bang. Where did it come from? What was, what? Now, all the mass in the universe came from something smaller than a pinhead. It's amazing. Uh, it's just amazing how that happens. Science, see, we believe in science. We don't believe in God. Now, that gets you back to nothing. That gets you, you don't, nothing, nothing comes from nothing. And this book says that Jesus is the one who spoke it into existence. So which is it? Is it baby Jesus in a manger? That we're just going to take so casually on a Christmas Eve and maybe sing some hymns and never give it one little tiny inkling of a thought. We'll open our presents and we'll talk about the games tomorrow and we'll do all that stuff. And we won't give one. Because if we keep it baby Jesus in a manger Jesus, my little plastic figurine hidden somewhere back in the tree... Well, then we don't have to think deeply about it, do we? But if he spoke everything into existence and then was humble enough to come down and lay down his life for you. Now, my friends, that is a free gift. We have no concept of gift. It's always everything's quid pro quo. It just is. So let's go back up with the lights here in closing, if you don't mind. I want you to look at, look at the chair in front of you and see if you can find a red napkin. Anybody see a chair with a red napkin on the back? Some, somewhere. I don't know where it was put. Some, does anybody see a chair with a red napkin on the back? Did you find it? There's a chair with a red napkin on the back. Can you, who, whose chair is that? Who's? Who sat there? Becky? Becky? Is that Becky's chair or somebody else's? It was just kind of random. I said, go put a, go put a, you know, my, some people go, well, why are you doing that? I just put a, put a napkin. And I want my daughter, where's Tess? Tess, come up here for a second. Tess, come up here. Tess going to come up here. She's got some roses. Whoever's chair, there was a red napkin on the back. I would ask them that they come up. Would you mind? I, this is not the price is right, but it's close. <laughs> do we not have the chair? Okay, beautiful. Somebody didn't want to come up, but he will do it on behalf. Okay, Tess, thank you very much. This is my youngest daughter, Tess. Everyone give Tess a round of applause. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sir, if you don't mind. Oh, I know this guy. Mr. Klein, how are you this morning? How are you? My dear friend, good to see you, good to see you. On behalf of Church at the Red Door, I give you this gift this Christmas. And tell me what you've done to deserve that gift. Absolutely nothing. Thank you very much. <laughs> Have a great Christmas, Brian. Now, here's the difference. Don't forget anything. Here's the difference. Religion says... If you can do this and this and this and this and this and that and that, then maybe God will accept you. Maybe. And then you're not even so sure about all that. Or if you can just get rid of those desires and merge back into the great cosmic oneness, Buddhism would say, right? Or whatever it is. It's all based on your ability to somehow do something. 
Jesus came to die, and he says, all you've got to do is you believe in me. Now, if you believe in me, you're going to follow me. You can't you say, yeah, I believe you created everything. I believe you did everything. I believe you got purpose for my life. I believe that we'll live eternally together. I believe all that kind of stuff. I'm really not. Can I just go back to my life here for a while and have a great time? And then I'll see you somewhere off in the cosmic eternity if you, in fact, exist. No, if you really believe that, you'll follow. There's just no other way. But you've got to understand, it's free. Religion says it's not free. Jesus says it's free. Now, that's a gift. You're going to get some gifts tonight. It wasn't free. Well, it wasn't free for somebody. This, this gift, though free to us, was not free to him. It cost him everything he had. Now, is that advent, that coming, that shining? I'm sorry, Jack Nicholson, you may have uh, kind of commandeered that little slogan. And when you think of the shining, you think of that horror movie back in that creepy out hotel. But this is the ultimate shining. This is Jesus coming into the world, and the Bible says that he was the light of the world. He said he was the light of the world. And he came to shine into darkness. Now, is that powerful? Is that, now, is that Christmas Eve? Now, that's something we should be thinking about on Christmas Eve. Now, you say, well, I'm not so sure about that. I, you know, there's a lot of questions I have. Good. You should be asking them. But start asking them today. Don't wait another day or another Christmas. Don't let another year go by where you haven't asked the deep questions and pondered the deep thoughts about Jesus in a manger, yes, but also Jesus, creator of all things. Staggering humility, staggering power, just staggering. If I could have the folks come back up, we're going to close with just a song or two. Many of these you will know well. Thank you, ladies. And then after they finish, I'm going to come back up and I'm just going to pray. It won't be long. I'll get to the point so you can get back to your festivities. But I will come back up and pray.